Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finlo Castain, the Chief Executive of Farmwell and founder of the Food and Global Security Network. Many governments see farm expansion and aggregation as the future for agriculture, but there's a grave risk that this will simply embed the structural inequity and external social and ecological costs inherent in today's food system. Instead, we need diversity in terms of production, cropping, distribution and diet, and of course, diversity in terms of farm scale, output and business. Structure. Small farms play a critical role, and who better to tell us why than Chris Smage, the author of A Small Farm Future, published by Chelsea Green. Chris is a social scientist and a small farmer himself who studied global economic systems and specialised in peasant studies. Chris, welcome. Let's go straight in for the big one. What's your vision of a small farm future? Hi, Finlay. Um, well, yeah, thanks very much for having me. When we talk about a vision, I guess one aspect of my book is that this is not necessarily what I want to see, um, but what I think is going to happen. I mean, as you were saying, there's all sorts of good reasons to have diversity and smaller farms and so on within the existing landscape. You know, I think there are some sort of big crises that are kind of pushing us um, in a very different direction. And I think to get to your question, you know, what um, what do I think the future will look like? I think, uh, you know, we've got huge problems with climate and water availability. It's going to be a future uh, with less easy energy availability. I think that's going to push people, uh, you know, we're going to see more people living in the countryside relative to the cities. So I think more people sort of trying to create a basic livelihood locally, more gardening relative to arable or livestock farming, more um, job-rich sort of focus on creating basic food and fibre commodities locally, more small holding. So yeah, a more, a kind of more peopled rural landscape with more of a focus on producing a diversity of food and fibre crops locally for people's immediate needs. And, and, you know, in many ways, I think that is quite an enticing vision, but I'm under no illusion that it's also a challenging one that's, you know, a lot of the things that we take for granted and particularly the kind of easy availability of, of energy that's going to be less available and that's going to have huge implications. So for you, small farms and home farms, home allotments, if you like, and short supply chains are essential to reset a societal balance and to fill economic and perhaps ecological gaps that can't be addressed by large retailers and corporations. Why do you think Mm. that this sort of farming is so undervalued by governments? Well, I mean, it's partly that obviously we've sort of been through this, you know, whole historic period of great sort of centralization of government power and productivism as a result basically of of the availability of cheap energy and, and and cheap capital so you know governments tend to sort of think big you know they don't want to be dealing with some kind of small holder in Somerset like me you know they want to be dealing with Sainsbury's or at the COP26 meeting you, you know you get Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos there you don't get the likes of me so there's that kind of massification sort of centralized element to it I mean uh, you know with a more political hat on I'd say also governments actively don't want people like me. There's a whole set of structures that are designed to stop people like me getting hold of a small bit of land and being self-reliant, you know, because that doesn't suit governments for all sorts of reasons. But, you know, why, also why there is... that, though? Why is that? Why are these structures in place? And you mentioned COP26. And while you're right, the, the likes of Sainsbury's will have, you know, very significant lobbying power there, not least because they're well-known brands and they have the money to make sure that their lobbyists are ever present. But at the same time... 
there are people like you at COP. There are indigenous populations that get represented at COP increasingly. But at the mm. same time, we're still not hearing these voices or we're still not valuing these voices. Yeah, I mean, well, that's right. And I think it's partly that it just, I think there is a recognition that wider voices have to be heard and have to be somehow figured in. But it's the somehow figuring in that, that is the problem. And, it, and it's partly that, you know, we've got this model of economic growth of financialization that uh, you know a government that kind of says no actually we're going to be self-reliant in our agriculture we're going to relocalize we're going to um you know just have people producing local food and fiber you know that is a very hard thing to do in the context of global governance and and, and sort of global economic imperatives so you know to be fair to them it's it's not really going to happen except through systemic breakdown which we are beginning to see unfortunately it's easy to pay lip service to the idea of consulting wider voices and indigenous people and so on but it's very hard to internalize that into existing models which are essentially about return on investment and increasing financialization. Is it that they don't value you? I mean, I know the premise of my question was that they don't, but is it that they don't value you or that they they just think that that sort of small economy will exist anyway? And is it that instead of just accepting that it will exist, there needs to be a strategy to actually create growth within that particular sector? Yeah, I mean, I suppose my point of departure in my writing is that, uh, you know, it would be great if there was a strategy to do that, but I'm not holding my breath. You know, I don't think that's what's driving government. So, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of our stuff is very much just get on with it, grassroots, under the radar the reality is that there's not very many people kind of building this this kind of local alternative agrarian economy and it and so it sort of becomes easy to sort of say yeah well you know it's lovely you being on your small holding you know raising a few sheep and having a veg garden but you know that doesn't really address the you know the real problems of the world and my argument is that well you know it doesn't because the world has gone in a particular direction that has marginalized that but that direction ultimately is unsustainable so whether we like it or not we are going to swing back to more of this um, kind of local distributed kind of economy and the question is whether we do that in a in a sort of orderly um, and, and thoughtful way or, or whether it happens by default in ways that may be less appealing if we look back to the Second World War and the decades beyond the Second World War, most of the families in Britain who had any land at all would be producing at least some of their food. Now, I wonder why that's changed. Is it that food has just become so cheap and easy to access that we don't need to grow our own? Is it that priorities have changed and people uh, are more interested in leisure and having gardens and lawns or that people are going out to work and just don't simply have the time to produce their mm. own food? Well, I think there's a lot of different factors, uh, many of which you, you touched on. I mean, you know, part of what we happened in the post-war period was this huge kind of global economic growth and, and at the same time a huge amount of mechanisation and, and, you know, a lot of the kind of modern package of farming in terms of machinery and pesticides, herbicides and so on. So I think it was sort of understandable in that post-war moment to move in that different direction, urbanisation, bigger farms, concentration, mechanisation. I think we're kind of reaping the sort of negatives of, of, of that in, in some ways now. And, you know, food prices are beginning to rise for all sorts of reasons. You know, we've, we've sort of put too many of our eggs in one basket to use a good old fashioned agricultural metaphor, you know, the sort of bread basket regions like Ukraine, Russia, and, you know, North America, we rely too much on, you know, this 
handful of global commodity crops produced in a relatively small parts of the world. And, you know, that all worked um, okay for, for a brief period. And we had this huge sort of global industrial growth. I think that's all beginning to unravel now. And, you know, the sort of thing about work and leisure is interesting. There are many more leisure opportunities nowadays, but there is also this you know, very rigorous emphasis on work. You know, we've got to be working all the time. We've got to be earning, you know, and it's very different from the sort of rhythms of a, you know, of a garden or a small farm or a small holding. There's a strange coalition emerging of politicians and environmentalists, both pushing for corporate ownership of food. The UK government seems entirely content with big farms gobbling up ever larger parcels of land. And then people like George Monbiot appear to fantasise about the end of agriculture itself with real food produced by synthetic lab-grown nutritional nuggets that are almost certainly produced by the same corporations that have been intensifying meat production all these years. So this is clearly the antithesis of the small farm. But I wonder, in your vision of the future, in your idea of what's going to take place, what's going to be necessary, do larger farm businesses and food corporations exist at all? I mean, it depends, I guess, on how, uh, you know, how far we project this vision into the future. I mean, my there is uh, a case for, for larger uh, farms and businesses, certainly at the present, but I think the politics that are driving my analysis are a kind of grassroots, bottom-up local politics. Certainly, we have to collaborate with each other locally and beyond locally and, and kind of build up collective institutions, um, you know, cooperatives, guilds, uh, and so on. You know, there's all sorts of ways that we can frame that. So, so those so are def- larger businesses. It's just that they're not necessarily the big corporations that we have now. Yeah, yeah. And I think we need to take a much more long-term vision. I mean, I, you know, I I don't think the notion of the corporation, the sort of big transnational business that is basically um, very much bound up with government as well. You know, there's this sort of, you know, we still have this slightly romantic notion of the private sector as, you know, some kind of wily entrepreneur who comes up with this great idea and and, and, and it, it catches on and they make money. But, you know, Basically, corporations have always been in hock with government. You know, it's been sort of two sides of the same coin. And, you know, I think I don't really see that as being um, the way forward long term. I mean, it's funny you mentioned George's book. You know, another book I read recently was um, called Sand Talk by uh, an Australian Aboriginal thinker, Tyson Junker Porter. And I mean, it's amazing. And his, his book is kind of how Indigenous wisdom can inform you know, our thinking today. And it's amazing reading his book where, you know, you think of this Aboriginal culture that survived for tens of thousands of years in Australia. Um, and we don't, you know, it's just having that mindset of, you know, is this is this idea that I have now, is is this going to be a good idea when we look at it 30,000 years down the line? You know? And I kind of think we need a little bit more of that kind of time framing rather than, you know, is this going to make some money or is this going to immediately solve some problem that we have you know, right now, this year. And I think if we take that more, that kind of longer term perspective, I mean, who knows, obviously, what, you know, what kind of institutions will be over that time frame. But I don't think the existing large scale corporate business that's that's wrapped up, you know, as you were saying earlier with COP26 and all that, I don't really see that 
as providing the answers. I think the answers are going to come from people locally sort of building bottom up, you know, working with other people in uh, and, and kind of innovating at that level. I'm interested in this um, collaboration, as you sort of describe it, between government and corporations. And it, it seems to me that it's, it's almost this kind of illusion of the Adam Smith ideal, which is almost fetishized, which often is misrepresented and misunderstood. And the idea that if the customer can see a range of different products all competing with each other in the marketplace, then they can make an informed choice. The invisible hand of the market will guide. But actually, that doesn't exist. If it ever existed, it doesn't now, because Mm. the marketplace is so ordered by these corporations, so ordered by government. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, you know, I talk a little bit about Adam Smith in in my book and some of the other um, sort of pioneering economists who, you know, in some ways, I think Smith, he saw the world that was coming and he, he, you know, in many ways, he he didn't particularly like it and was, um, you know, he, he offered some pretty trenchant criticisms of the direction that it was going in but he also kind of theorized it in ways that kind of no longer really seem seem appropriate but you know one thing he did do you know he was um quite grounded in the idea of of kind of well established local economic development rather than global trade and financialization which of course in his day was was minuscule compared to what we have now so adam smith was was talking about what he called unnatural development which was um kind of an over reliance on financialization speculation commerce rather than building a stable agrarian and and to some extent industrial base, you know, so I think we need to, you know, we need to be thinking about building that base in a different kind of way to, to how we've been accustomed to in recent years. I want to come back to George Monbiot because he has such a large and influential platform. And Monbiot is a person who appears to set academic science on a pedestal, while at the same time hugely undervaluing the lived experience of farmers. Now, your background is part academic, part pastoral. And in your book, you say, I don't think a commitment to science as transcendent truth will end well. What do you mean? Well, yeah, George is a good example. I've just I've just finished reading his book, actually. And it's a case in point where he talks about the degree of urbanisation as, as a matter of, of mathematics. He kind of says, um, you know, you can't argue with arithmetic. Uh, we all live in cities a long way away from where food is produced. So, you know, we all, all this kind of local agriculture stuff is a lovely idea, but, you know, it's it's not going to work in the face of re- the arithmetic. My argument is, well, it's, it's not about arithmetic. It's about politics, economics, um, social history. Uh, and you can, you know, you can absolutely argue with the way that's turned out. And that's kind of what I mean about science as a transcendent truth. I mean, I'm not arguing with the scientific method. You know, you can uh, you can do a bunch of experiments and, and prove that the, that the earth is round. You know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not questioning that. But I think we've got into this whole way of thinking about science, which is not actually a scientific way of thinking. It's, uh, it's science as this kind of cultural artifact. It's all bound up with our religious artifact. It is. It is. I mean, it is a kind of form of, you know, people talk about scientism rather than science as a kind of modern religion. And it's bound up with cultural notions of progress, of new technologies being kind of good in and of themselves. And what I'm arguing is that that, you know, if if we, I mean, again, you know, George's precision fermentation thing is a case in point. If we say, well, you know, these clever scientists, they've got this, they've got the food system all worked out. They can produce this food. It's, it's not going to have any ecological impact. We can just eat it. 
it's this is scientific, this is modern. I think that's going to lead to all sorts of problems that is not really going to deliver the kind of society that you want. It's going to, it's going to deliver people who are very much alienated from being a, a living, breathing organism sort of in the world. And it's, you know, and as you say, it's going to deliver more power to corporate and, and government sort of top down ways of thinking. So and, it's and in that sense. And of course, if you're talking about ecological impact, or, or if George is, then A, we don't know what the ecological impacts of scaling that type of, of that produced food mm, really mm. is but at the same time there's a huge knock-on environmental impact of undermining the way that the countryside is, is organized and taking a, a living out of the countryside so that suddenly there's there's nobody left to manage it and seeing as so much of the degradation has been actively managed over the course of the last 100 or 200 years we need to actively manage the restoration and regeneration of the countryside i mean i certainly think we need to put ourselves back into the land and be, uh, that's one of the arguments for localism, I think, is that, you know, if you go to the shop and buy food off, off the shelves, you know, it might say organic or fair trade or whatever, but you don't necessarily know what that means. You know, you don't know where, where it was produced, who produced it, under what conditions of labour, under what ecological conditions. Whereas if we are, you know, with a more local agrarian economy, um, you, you know, you, you're much more um, immediately faced with the circumstances and, and the consequences of your production and you can see you know if, if you sort of financialize the uh, agrarian system globally um, and you know there's loads of interesting studies of this um you know shrimp farming in bangladesh for example um uh you know if you kind of financialize it as a way of developing or as a way of adapting to you know particularly changing uh, ecological circumstances you know, if you're doing that in a global context, the local consequences of that can be really disastrous. And then if you add add all those local consequences up globally, that's where, we, we, you know, you get into the mess that we're in. So actually re-emplacing ourselves in the landscape, uh, you know, that's a really critical, you know, argument uh, or basis of this argument for localism is that, you know, if you are the farmer, if you are producing your livelihood, you know, you have to do that in a uh, thoughtful, long-term way and it, it kind of overcomes. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that it's perfect and that everyone then becomes, a, you know, a kind of wonderful ecological steward, but it, that's kind of the direction we've got to go in rather than just offloading the responsibility onto somebody else, onto scientists or governments, um, you know, to sort of do that thinking for us. So in terms of the balance between science and lived experience, it's not necessarily that science should be seen as less important, but that the lived experience of individual farmers should become better valued. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an, a tremendously difficult thing to be a, a farmer, um, well, all, you know, throughout history, but certainly nowadays, you know, you've got, you know, you're expected to have a, a business that stacks up at some level financially, um, you're expected to produce cheap food that the consumer wants and you're expected to look after the environment and you know you can't really do all of those things within the way it's framed so yeah you know i think we do need uh, to value farmers inputs and farmers experience and i think you know the way uh, historically there's i think we've thought about farm extension in better ways than we now do it's almost like extension has been outsourced to big corporations you know trying to sell you know whatever they're sort of agrochemicals or agri products are and then there's quite a lot of regulation you know it's just quite top down you know you mustn't do this you you must do that so you know again I, I I'm, I'm always arguing the case for the sort of bottom-up grassroots what we need is farmers 
to be helped and to help each other to be better farmers, you know, to, to value their experience and, and to try and make it easier for them to do all of those things, you know, to produce good food, to live a viable lifestyle and to look after the environment. And to value these things at all scales as well, because, you know, I think mm. that there is a, a degree to which farmers who've got a couple of hundred acres or maybe 500 or even 1,000 acres don't necessarily think of the small farmer with, you know, three acres and a cow in the same category. And actually, a lot of the knowledge, even though there's a different scale, a lot of that knowledge sharing uh, is relevant in both directions. Yeah, I mean, part of my shtick, I think, is to sort of try and break down that distinction between, uh, you know, the, the farmer, the, the sort of stereotype of the farmer as, you know, like this huge farm with just one or two people sitting in a big tractor and more amateur, you know, amateur growers, you know, I like to say, you know, you've got a few herbs on a, you know, in, in a pot on a, on a window ledge in a high rise, you know, you're a farmer, you know, I mean, let's, um, let's all be part of this process of producing food. I mean, I think there is a problem, there's a kind of missing middle, you know, it's, it's relatively easy, you know, like I occasionally raise a couple of wieners on, on my holding here. And then, you know, there's a pig farmer down the road who's got a couple of thousand, you know, but there isn't, you don't tend to have someone who's raising kind of one or 200 pigs for a, for the local market. And, and obviously there's sort of issues there about fodder production and so on, you know. But yeah, you know, I think we need to embrace all scales and be talking to each other across those scales. But we, you know, going back to some of your earlier questions, you know, the way that the economics have driven this is that there isn't all that much between big scale mechanized farming and and sort of amateur gardening or small holding and we sort of need to be stitching all that back together at, at different levels i think one of the key themes in your book is the political economy the idea that the economy and the way that we order society is the result of political choices now i know we touched on this a little bit already but could you tell us a bit more about that yeah i mean it's again it's a little bit like the the discussion we just had about science you know we uh, nowadays we tend to talk about the economy um, as, as this um, almost like this force of nature over which we have no control. You know, the science dictates that we do this, the economy dictates that we do that. And really the point of uh, talking about political economy is just to emphasise that this is a human artifice that we've created and we have choices and control over it, which, you know, going back to that discussion about the likes of Adam Smith and David Ricardo, they were much more aware that what we call the economy emerged from from social conflicts or classes, social forces within society, landowners, industrialists, workers, and so on. I mean, that's only one framing you could put around it, but it's, you know, the idea is that the economy is not something out there over which we have no control, but emerges um, from the political choices that we make. So for you, because the economy is the result of political choices, we can make different choices. But I wonder, you know, you talk there about uh, economy being seen as a, as a, almost a force of nature. And we think in terms of the laws of nature, you know, sort of basic things like gravity. But when we're taught economics, economics also has its own laws. So is all economics political or are there still some fundamental laws governing things like supply and demand and price rises? Oh, great question. I mean, I would say yes, all economics is political, but it, that doesn't necessarily mean that it that it's only political. I mean, supply and demand is an interesting one. You know, as a, as I, I, was, I studied anthropology and it was a sort of big debate in anthropology some years ago. Um, you know, if you look at societies 
that are very different from our own, you know, like in sort of New Guinea or somewhere, you know, does market supply and demand operate in the same way? And I think really the answer is no, it doesn't. And, you know, the modern people trying to reform economic thinking now, like Kate Raworth, you know, she says uh, once people have learned to sort of, you know, a supply and demand graph, they're sort of lost, you know. To, to, so I kind of think, you know, it is very deeply political. But having said that, you know, you talked about laws of nature, I think in as much as there are economic laws, they're actually the points at which human society interacts with the natural world, which is why farming and food is so critical, I think, because that's exactly where society meets nature. You know, there are certain things that we can't just kind of politic our way out of. So, you know, obviously at the moment, the big story is uh, fuel prices, you know. So, um, sure, the government could say, OK, um, petrol's going to be 50p a litre instead of uh, two quid. But that will have consequences. You know, you can't, it's not a matter of politics just in that, you know, you can sort of wave a wand or say by fear, you know, this is how it is. And, and obviously, you know, you could say there are laws of supply and demand in as much as we have this huge complex social structure, kind of institutional structure built around a certain way of thinking about commodities and um, trade and money and so on. So um, although ultimately I would argue that is a political choice, it, you know, there's a kind of path dependency. So you can't just kind of abolish it by, a, you know, by passing a law in, in the House of Commons, you know. But ultimately, the things that are really driving it, uh, you know, they are things like energy, water, soil, you know, some of these more fundamental natural forces are the things that are that are going to drive change because you can't just kind of conjure energy out of nowhere. You know, if you strip your soil bare, you can't then farm it next year. You know, those are the real laws of nature that I think, you know, we have to pay, um, pay attention to. So you've got laws of nature and then built on top of that uh, are these assumptions rather than laws that we make about economics. I'm really interested, I'm really pleased to hear you talking about the way in which different cultures and different places around the world have a different understanding of supply and demand because I can remember, you know, my GCSE and when I tried to question, you know, the, the basic laws of supply and demand and say that it was more complicated and that society, you know, kind of got in the way of some of these economic theories. I tell you, it really didn't go down well. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very entrenched, um, very entrenched that way of thinking. It's all almost like this kind of recursive model where we kind of set up um, a certain way of doing things and then we you know we describe how it works in in terms of these kind of law-like generalizations but you know uh, which sort of work but you know because we've chosen and set up these institutions that operate in that way but the uh, economic historian, pioneering economic historian, um, Carl Polanyi, you know, he talked about land, labour and money as the fictitious commodities because we treat land as if it's something that you can just buy and sell. But actually, for, for a whole bunch of reasons, you know, you can't really do that long term. In my book, I talk about problems of the symbolic e economy. You know, humans are great at inventing. We, we sort of, we're, we're brilliant at inventing all these ways of relating to each other. And money, you know, is an amazing thing which generates this huge amount of activity and interaction. Um, but ultimately, it does meet these, the way you framed it, these real natural laws. You know, you can't, you can't produce more food than you can produce. You can't conjure energy out of nowhere. Uh, and so ultimately, there are other realities and there are other ways of thinking about those things, you know, going back to someone like Tyson Yunker Porter, you know, these much more long-term ways of thinking about how we emplace ourselves in the landscape that, that I think are important. And it's interesting, actually, that even, even the markets in land and, you know, the buying and selling of land have changed 
or are changing at the moment with this idea of natural capital and right. the way in which you know land is more than just a place. It is a, a bundle of ecological outcomes and potentially social capital outcomes as well. And also, you know, a big problem with land is, you know, the old Mark Twain um, joke that, um, you know, buy land because they ain't making it anymore. You know, it's, you know, you can't just keep producing more land. Um, and that has all sorts of implications in terms of the, the, the demand, you know, the price for land, which sort of inflates it beyond. And housing too, you know, that inflates it beyond what a lot of people can afford. Do you know, it's really fascinating that you bring up the quote from Mark Twain there, that the thing about land is they're not making it anymore. But actually, when I talk to regenerative or agroecological farmers around the world, it's one of the things that they, they actually contest. They say, you know, what they are doing is creating more soil. And so although that horizontal amount of land is not expanding, what they're doing is building it. And then they talk in terms of vertical real estate, where you're growing taller grasses because your land mm. is functioning better. Therefore, you're getting more volume of grass and sward out of the same parcel of land. So that's a really interesting dichotomy as well. No, well, I mean, I'd go along with that. I mean, I think sometimes people can overpress that argument and sort of say, you know, that we can sort of produce infinite you know, <laughs> amounts of food or whatever from tiny areas. But nevertheless, I agree that, um, you know, people are effectively creating more land. And that's, you know, partly through knowledge and, and sort of practical skills, science, if you like, and also through labour, you know, through, um, you know, through bringing more considered um, complex human labour to bear, which is, you know, one reason why sort of big scale mechanisation, which tends to, I think, oversimplify, you know, we need to be complicating the ways that we produce things. And that involves sort of bringing people back into the picture. Um, and actually, so, yeah. it's not just even human labour, but but the labour of humans um, recruiting nature as as a yeah, farm yeah, worker in yeah. itself and using livestock. So you've got, you know, labour coming from many different sources, all integrating to sort of create this additional capacity uh, or to restore yeah. the original capacity of the land. Chris, in your book, you outline 10 existential crises from climate and soil to economy and culture. And we've touched on a few of these. We don't have time to go into all of them, but the first crisis that you write about and that we haven't talked about yet is population. Are there too many people? Right, I'm going to channel my inner politician in trying to answer that question by not saying either yes or no. I mean, <laughs> one of the funny things is that uh, yeah, some people raise this issue, oh, there's, there's too many people, but you know, you can't wish people away except in, in sort of, you know, fairly draconian and wicked ways. Um, and I think the reality is that most people agree that, you know, what we need is voluntary control over our fertility. The flaw in that line of thinking is if we could just have fewer of us, then we could carry on sort of doing the things that we're doing and, and, and it would be easier. The reason that the, the world is so heavily populated um, is part of the same reasons impelling this kind of, you know, what I've called the symbolic economy, um, you, you know, certain ways of organising um, ourselves, ways of producing um, food. So it's, you know, we need to sort of get at the underlying structure of that, you know, so population, you know, it might be a problem in, in some places, um, but it's a kind of um, proximal problem and we need to get at the underlying problem. And increasingly there's research that shows that if we amend the diets that we have, if we reduce the extractive activity on the land, then actually we can feed perfectly easily the 9, 10 billion people that are forecast. If we 
waste less, that it's about resources and it's about the way that we we manage the land that we have. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, you, you hear these figures that we're going to need, you know, 50% or 70% more food, which is odd because it's not there's not going to be that many more people. And, you know, actually population growth rates are reducing. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, it's not really a, 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 a problem of total food supply. I mean, I don't dispute, you know, the argument of someone like George is that we do have this enormous agricultural footprint on the planet. And, you know, I don't dispute that, but it's not a matter of like having to extend that. Uh, as you say, you know, there's there's all sorts of ways we can be smarter about how we produce things, what we produce that begin to reduce that footprint. It's interesting, isn't it, that people seem to look at this trajectory of increasing numbers of humans on the planet as if they need to provide for them in precisely the same way they'd be provided for and not question the choices that they make. And so there is this, this sort of notion that if we're going to have three billion more people, then we have to produce the same sort of food in the same sort of way for those three mm. billion people rather than addressing the issues of waste, rather than addressing the issues of what people are choosing to eat. Uh, and that has always seemed to me, I mean, crazy. Maybe it's a tall order, but we need to move away from this notion of consumerism where there's the sort of notion that people should demand whatever they demand and, and then we need a, a structure of economic production to meet that demand. You know, I think we need to move more towards producerism, you know, people as producers of their own livelihoods. In um, kind of development studies, there's a notion of livelihoods and how poor people kind of stitch together a complex livelihood through sort of pragmatic means. And we need to sort of start thinking about all our livelihoods in that sort of way. You know, how can I live a good life on the basis of the renewable resources that are available to me? And I think that will push us in a different direction and more towards you know where where we came into this discussion you know what does the future look like it looks like having more people on the land thinking through the constraints that the land imposes on them and and, and sort of how to generate a good livelihood out of that and, and that will include the things you were just talking about sort of agroecological you know regenerative forms of farming where you know people can be really creative in terms of how they do that but they kind of need to be on the land doing it, thinking about it. And, you know, that's why I argue for a small farm future. So that's, you know, at the heart of that is a land appropriate food production. And right, part right. of that is a more land appropriate national diet. And of course, you know, in many of the poorer societies around the world, their diets are already fairly land appropriate. So really what we're talking about is kind of, you know, large Western economies remembering to start eating the sorts of foods again that are appropriate for the land yeah. uh, and the landscape that they come from. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we definitely need to develop local food cultures which you know in some places there's been more historical continuity than in others I mean I think in the UK because we sort of industrialized and urbanized very early you don't sort of get that you know that sort of terroir kind of idea or that that you know I mean yeah, obviously we do have our sort of local foods and uh, and, and so on but um, you know it's it's quite weak and and the reality, you know, as I said earlier, we've got, you know, something like 75% of global cropland is devoted to just 10 crops, you know, six of which are cereals, two of which are legumes. And I mean, obviously we grow, you know, wheat, rice and maize obviously being the big ones. And, you know, 
we grow those crops, you know, because they're great crops and, you know, in, in many ways and do a lot of things we want, but, you know, you can have too much of a good thing, you know, and that's why, you know, again, I argue for horticulture for a more sort of integrated approach rather than just you know, wheat, soy or whatever, you know, that sort of, you know, it ticks the sort of macronutrient box. And so let's produce a, as much of it as we can and, and, and then kind of package it in endless um, fancy ways in the supermarket you know we you know we need to embrace a more diverse local food culture another thing you talk about is a future demographic and sociological shift away from the economic dynamism that brought people into cities and back towards rural areas where people mm. will start to live more simply perhaps and grow more of their own food now surely the big challenge here particularly in western economies like the uk is land ownership are you expecting some sort of return to a society of peasants and gentry and if not do we need a revolution <laughs> i'm gonna have to channel my politician uh, again and sort of try and answer sort of neither of the above i mean no no god help us i don't want a society of lords and peasants um so yeah there does need to be land reform i mean you know it's an interesting one because i think land ownership people often say you know you want to take us back to a sort of feudal society but we don't have the structure of certainly say contemporary britain i don't think there's a kind of feudal society waiting in the wings like feudal societies were based on kind of warrior aristocracies you know which we which we we don't have although we do have kind of incipient warrior aristocracies so we need to sort of nip that in the bud i think and and i think partly that's going to happen through pressure on land through migration you know through the need to access land for all the reasons we were talking about earlier i mean as to a revolution i mean i don't know here I mean, where i am here is sort of the heartlands of the pitchfork rebellion that didn't turn out all that well for the rebels but then not too many years after the end of it, James II was uh, out on his ear and uh, some of what the rebels had wanted happened anyway. So I kind of think, I do think we need um, land reform and we need to confront injustice. Um, you know, we need uh, a, a bit of civil disobedience and a bit of kind of rattling the cage. Um, you know, I don't sort of think that the examples of revolution that, that are available from recent history, which kind of were all peasant revolutions, ultimately at, at, at sort of at moments of, of the kind of introduction of modernization and a monetary economy. I, I don't think they have many lessons for where we are right now in a country like the UK, but we do need land reform. We do need partly just housing. You know, there's a sort of intergenerational injustice. We need young people to be able to access housing, but we also need wider access to land for sure. So, you know, we do need some quick thinking about land reform. And of course, revolution is a societal response to political failure, ultimately, isn't it? And uh, so, Yeah, it, yeah, it is. And, and it's, you know, part of the problem is I don't think sort of saying, you, you know, that the, the sort of present lot in government are awful, let's kick them out and, and, you know, we'll start governing and it'll all be better. I mean, <laughs> I think the sort of historical lessons there are that the people that start governing in in their stead are, you know, are not necessarily any better. You know, part of the problem is government itself, not the particular flavour of the people who are in government. So, you know, I think there's, I mean, I'm not saying that that means we shouldn't vote, you know, vote for better, better candidates rather than worse and engage in all of that political process. But ultimately, it's not really about, you know, who's um, pulling the strings in, in central 
government. You know, it's it's a, it's about a sort of deeper kind of economic and political transformation. And ultimately, if politicians were far-sighted enough to see the sorts of changes that we're expecting and to understand the importance of land reform, then there's no reason why we can't have a land use strategy where there aren't incentives for uh, landowners and farmers to actually set aside parts of their farms so that uh, so that the general citizenry can use that and take advantage of that land. And there could be financial incentives from government to farmers to allow that to happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, it would be great if there was a, a kind of real push for land reform. I mean, I think, you know, England, you know, if we're just talking about the UK, I think England is behind the game in turn, you know, relative to, say, Scotland or Wales, you know, but... But yeah, it would be great to do that. And there are, you know, there are sort of initiatives um, and the Land Workers Alliance are doing stuff about bringing small scale horticulture into the mix on, on larger scale farms. So, you know, there's loads of kind of good things that can be done on the ground. But ultimately, I think there are these obstacles of the larger economic system and, and you know, the way that land is financialized. Chris, in terms of this conversation, the conversation we've just been having, the conversation more broadly throughout this program and through the book, you're presenting people with a choice. We can choose a dystopia in which we pick through the debris of disaster or we can choose to reconstruct our political economy and pre-adapt to the ecological insecurity we're facing by creating a new and perhaps more egalitarian society, one that you suggest would be more resilient to ecological change. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that frames it very well. You know, I'm not I'm not sort of um, presenting a future utopia saying, oh, you know, it's, it'll all be lovely if we just have our, you know, our, our gardens and small holdings. Um, but, you know, I think if we don't, uh, if we don't confront some of these big crises and structural obstacles, um, it could be pretty bleak. The key is to make the best of, of the reality that we confront. And I think that does mean um, more fairness, less inequality. It means more people living and working in reinvigorated countrysides. And, and it you know, all the things we were talking about earlier, it means creating local food cultures of which, you know, of which we're all a part rather than, you know, just consumers sort of down at the store. Just finally, in your chapter from religion to science and back, you imagine a new agrarian society developing more in tune with the rhythm of the year, where there are seasons of carnival and excess tempered with periods of Lenten restraint. Now, we still, of course, have festivals in the countryside. And this midsummer, I was at the Philly Loo in Ashmore in Dor it with drinking and games centred around the village dew pond, the highest bit of land right. in Dorset, uh, and the evening culminating at sundown with a haunting and sombre horn dance. But these are just faint echoes of the past. Are you looking forward to a new period of medieval excess? <laughs> yeah, well, it's an interesting question because I think, you know, we, we sort of tend to have this view of the past as being sort of incredibly grim and, you know, everyone had the nose to the grindstone. And, and you know, there is an element of truth to that, but there was also all of that, um, you know, the carnival excess uh, you know, one of the issues, as, as I said earlier, you know, in, in modern times, we've got very focused on work and sort of hard work, you know, the, it's a sort of classic political slogan of hardworking families. And I think, you know, people in the past, um, 
to some extent may have had a, a, a bit more wisdom than we do now on, you know, there being times for hard work and, and times for um, times for play, you know, so... Um, I mean, the Winter you know, Festival would last for weeks, wouldn't it? In the yeah, last? yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think we forget how, you know, how much the... Um, the emphasis on on financialization and accumulation sort of you know keeps us chained to the to the office or the tractor or yeah whatever it might be so you know i don't want to uh, you know you, you always get this sort of accusation that you're romanticizing the past or wanting to go back to some image of a golden age and i think we you know we need to we need to get beyond that you know we need to you know we're not trying to recreate anything from the past but we can if we sort of get over our own sort of modernist arrogance, we can learn from the past, you know, and definitely um, uh, uh, sort of re-evaluating work and play is something we need to do. Chris, thanks so much. Uh, that's all we've got time for. I'd like to thank my guest, Chris Smage, author of A Small Farm Future. Chris's website is smallfarmfuture.org.uk. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us, and share our links. Farmgate is funded by Sankalpa, and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now.